All right, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Isaiah chapter 34. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the rows of chairs, um, and, and the passage will also be up on the screen behind me. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 34. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it's kind of around in the middle, so if you just flip around a little bit, you'll probably find it. Um, again, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 34. He says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction." The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Eden. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, even even passages that are filled with things that uh, are, are unpleasant for us to think about, uh, like bloodshed and, and violence and, and your judgment being poured out on this earth. God, but I thank you that they tell us the truth about how bad sin is and how bad evil is and how bad wickedness is and 
that the penalty of sin is death. But that your word also tells us good news too. It tells us the good truth of you sending your son to die in our place and to live the life that we couldn't live so that we could be spared from judgments like you describe in Isaiah chapter 34. God, I pray today that as we look at this passage together, that that you wouldn't allow us to shrug this off as Old Testament language or uh, something that, that doesn't matter for us because we're in Christ, but that instead you would place down upon us the reality that judgment is coming for those who haven't trusted in Christ. And that that would cause us to be grateful, so very grateful and thankful and overflowing with praise to you for what you've done for us in Christ. And it would also cause us to open our mouths and share the good news that this judgment can be avoided. Father, I pray today that you would stir us towards love for you and good deeds for others. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, as you probably got when we were reading this passage, that it's, it's a particularly cheery passage this morning. Lots of, lots of light notes, some levity here and there, a bit of humor mixed in. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's all judgment for all people for all time, forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, and so this, this isn't a pleasant passage. And so before, before we, we talk about kind of the details of the passage, there's a few things that I want to cover beforehand. The first is that like where we are in Isaiah, right? We're in this section where he started by talking about the crisis that they're facing. They're facing the fact that Assyria is a looming threat. They're coming to, you know, wipe them out. And they've got these leaders who, who are foolish and are wicked and are making bad decisions for the people. So Isaiah kind of started this section of his book by talking about that. And then he spent two chapters warning them not to go down to Egypt for help from Assyria because that was going to fail and they couldn't trust in Egypt. But of course, these wicked and foolish leaders do the very thing that he spends two chapters telling them not to do. They go down to Egypt and Egypt fails them. And because they're rebelling against Assyria, Assyria comes to attack them. Then they decide, you know, we trusted in Egypt, that failed. Hey, let's try to trust in Assyria. And so maybe we can pay them off and they'll just leave us alone. They take uh, Syria takes their money and then attacks them anyway. And then God gives them his plan for them, how he's going to fix the current problem and really all the problems that they've had throughout their history. And it's by himself being king, which by the way, he already has been forever, and them recognizing that he is their king. So them living under his kingship in submission and service and worship to him. That's how he's going to fix the problems that they have in their nation. And that's what we saw last week. And then really the next two chapters in this section today and next week are natural, logical, theological outworkings of the fact that God is king. If God is the king of all creation then those who rebel against him are going to experience judgment. That's what today's passage is about. 
those who trust in him, those who serve him as king, those who uh, are, have trusted in his son and his plan of redemption will experience salvation. That's what the passage next week is about, or next time, Isaiah 35. And so today, we're going to focus just on judgment. Next time, we'll talk about the salvation, but I think that it'll be good for us to to wrestle with this passage and come to grips with the judgment and its uh, depressing nature and its devastating uh, violence that is described in this passage because I think that these kinds of passages make us uncomfortable. Right? We don't, we don't like thinking about judgment. We don't like thinking about or talking about like hell and, you know, eternal damnation or, or anything like that. It makes us uncomfortable. And I think there's, I think there's three main reasons for that. And, and one of them is, is good and two of them are bad. There's more smaller reasons, but I think that the three main ones are this. The first one, it's a bad reason. It's that we don't recognize or, um, or maybe admit to ourselves or, or remember that the fact that God is king means judgment is coming. Right? As, as the king of all creation, he has to do something about the fact that some of his people reject him and rebel against him. He can't be a king and not do something about that. And so we like to think and we like to hope in and long for all the good things that we know that are coming when he comes and brings his kingdom in its fullness, right? The, the, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, like there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. We love to think about and long for and hope in all of those things. And we should, we absolutely should, but what we can't forget and by me, when I say forget, I mean like remember constantly is that the fact that salvation is coming also means that judgment is coming for those who haven't trusted in Christ. And we shouldn't forget that. But because we have forgotten it, we don't like to think about these kinds of passages. The second reason, I think, is a mostly good one. Right? We don't like to think about bloodshed and pain and suffering and death happening to other people. It's because God created us to have compassion. He created us to show mercy and, and to care about people, right? So when we see suffering, when we see pain in the world, when we see people die, it should affect us. If it doesn't affect us, then there's something broken in us that God needs to fix. And so when we see a passage like this, we think, I don't want the people that I love and care about, the people that I know, the people that are in my life, I don't want them to experience God's judgment. I don't want people that I don't know, that I don't have any relationship, that aren't in my life, to experience God's judgment. That's, that's a good thing. That's something God has created in us. And so uh, we forget that God is king, and that, that means salvation and judgment is coming. Uh, the second reason why these passages make us uncomfortable is because we care about people. But the third reason is that we don't allow our compassion uh, to override our selfishness and our laziness so that we open our mouths and share the good news that that judgment can be avoided. We care, but not as much as we care about me. So we don't like these passages because they make us feel guilty. And some of that is probably bad, unhelpful guilt. But I think a lot of it is godly guilt that we should feel 
because the compassion that he's given us is trumped by our love for ourself and it doesn't flow outward as we share the good news that this judgment uh, isn't the end. It isn't the, the only news that's out there. And So as we work through this passage, I hope that, that we can sit in this judgment together and think about it and, and recognize that even though it, it, it's not going to fall on us, it's going to fall on someone. And that should stir us to action. Uh, and, and, and really, compassion is love that flows outward into action. So we would really have compassion for others. So let's, let's dig into this passage. The first two verses, uh, Isaiah here is just kind of giving us the main details of the passage. He's saying, you know, who's, who's doing something? Who's the one taking action? What is the action that they're taking? And, and who are they taking action against? So the first one, who's, who's doing something? Well, he tells us, he says, uh, the Lord is enraged against all the nations. He's furious. He's devoted them to destruction. He's given them over for slaughter. So God is the one who's taking action in this passage. He's making it very clear that the judgment that's happening at this point of Isaiah, it's not something that he's using Assyria to do. It's not something he's using some other nation to do. This is he himself taking action and, and pouring out judgment. So what's what's he doing? He's, he's pouring out judgment, right? He says that he's He's enraged, he's, he's furious, he's devoted them to destruction, he's given them over to slaughter. This is uh, like wholesale, widespread, worldwide judgment that God is, is pouring out. And that answers the third question, who are the objects of this? He says, draw near, O nations, give attention, O peoples, let the earth, let the earth hear and everything that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. He's, he's covering all of his possible bases. This judgment is against everyone and everything in all the creation. It's against all the nations. It's against all their host. So God, in Isaiah 34, is pouring out judgment. He's pouring it out on everyone. That's what's happening in these verses. The rest of the chapter is about him describing and kind of filling out the details of that judgment. But the main idea of this passage is God's going to judge the world. Um, And the rest of the passage really kind of breaks down into, into four groups. And it gives us more information about this judgment. It tells us that it's going to be violent, uh, it's going to be lasting, it's going to be thorough, and that it is inevitable. So we see the violence in verses 3 through 7. It says that the stench of the corpses will rise. There's going to be so much death that the air is going to be filled with, with rotting flesh. The mountains are going to flow with blood. The people are going to fall like leaves fall from vines and trees when winter comes. The sword of the Lord, it's, it's sated, it's soaked with blood. It's gorged with fat. Uh, he says there's been a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Lambs and goats and rams and steers and bulls and oxen have all fallen. The land is drunk with blood, and its soil is gorged with fat. It is going to be a gritty, bloody mess. It's going to be violent. It's also going to be lasting. He says, the Lord has a day of vengeance. Well, that's not so bad. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Okay, that's worse. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become a burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. That's worse. 
Its smoke shall go up forever. That's much, much worse. From generation to generation, it shall lay waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So God is going to judge all the world. This judgment is going to be violent and bloody, and it's going to be lasting forever and ever. He's talking here about eternal, lasting forever judgment that he's going to pour out on uh, his creation. It's also thorough. In verses 11 through 15, we get that weird bit we read about all those animals and birds. He says that the the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. Um, He goes on to say that it's a a haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. Um, As I was reading this, I thought about that time, like, you know, when you're writing a paper for school and you find yourself using the same word again and again and again. And so then you, like, hit, if you're using Microsoft Word, shift F7 to bring up the thesaurus or you open a thesaurus if, you know, you were born in that generation that had books like that. Um, because, you know, you don't want to use the same word again and again and again, so you, you switch. And I feel like Isaiah did that at this point of his, his, his prophecy that he's writing. You know, he picks up well, I need a, I can't use the same bird name. And so we've got <laughs> hawks and owls and ostriches. Um, but what he's doing here is he's just describing like as much of creation as he can. And all of these animals have moved into town and they're living in the places and the palaces where people used to live because the people don't live there anymore. The people are gone. People are dead. The people are experiencing God's judgment. And so his creation uh, becomes a wilderness again where all these animals live. The last two verses of the chapter talk about how this judgment is inevitable. He says to, to read from the book of the Lord. None of these things are going to be missing. He says, the mouth of the Lord has commanded. His spirit has, has gathered these things. He's cast the lot. His hand has portioned it out. Uh, they shall possess it forever and ever from generation to generation. They shall dwell on. He's saying, God has said he's going to do this. And when God says he's going to do something, he does it. He keeps his promises, even the ones that are about violent, lasting, thorough, inevitable judgment. God keeps his word. So this passage tells us judgment is coming. God's the one that's pouring it out. He's pouring it out on all the earth. It's going to be violent. It's going to be lasting. It's going to be thorough. And it's inevitable. That's this passage from a high level. Now, real quick, I want us to, to kind of zoom in and, and, and check out a couple, a couple details in this passage. The first is that as we read through it, you may have noticed that he, he talked about Edom. Um, he, he said that it, his sword descends on judgment in verse 5. He says there's a sacrifice in Basra in verse 6. That's, that's a city in Edom. He says there's a great slaughter in the land of Eden, also in verse 6. And then down in verse 9, he says the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. And so the question is, why, why, why is he talking about this, this nation? You know, why not, why not Assyria? Why not Babylon? Why not Egypt? Why not one of the many nations he's already brought up in the book of Isaiah? Why does he, he turn to them here? Um, and well, well, Edom is another name for Esau. And so the, the Edomites are, uh, Esau is a brother of Jacob, Jacob also known as Israel. And so Edom and Israel are blood relatives. They're, 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 they're family. 
but they're also enemies. They dislike each other. Um, there, is, there is no other nation in the Old Testament that is as consistently and continually hostile to God's people as Edom. No other nation. And so if, if, if you were to think, who is kind of the chief example of an enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament, Edom is the answer. That's who these people are. And so it seems like Isaiah, uh, God through Isaiah in chapter 34, as he's talking about this uh, judgment that's going to be poured out on, on all nations, right? We know it's all nations because he talked to, us, talked to us about that in verses 1 and 2. He brings up Edom, not because it's, there's a focus on one nation, but because that one nation represents those who stand opposed to God and his people. They are kind of the, the, uh, the arch nemesis of the story. Um, they're, they're the bad guy. And so he's talking about how God's judgment is going to be poured out on the enemies of the people of God who are the enemies of God. Um, and so that's, that's the flavor this judgment has. And before we move on to the second detail, I, I want to just point out that in this time, Old Testament time, right, Israel as a nation are God's people. Edom, as a nation, are God's enemies. But Jesus has come and he has made for himself a people from all nations. Some who are from Edom, some who are from Israel, some who are from Palestine, some who are from Pakistan, some who are from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so when we think about God's enemies and God's people, we should not think about countries. And so all that junk you see on Facebook about how we need to defend a particular nation because they're God's people, that doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from a political platform. So when he says God's enemies are going to be judged, he means those who aren't his people those who haven't trusted in Christ, those who haven't been adopted into his family, not people that are in particular countries or races. The second detail of this passage is is the sacrificial language that's kind of sprinkled throughout it. And so in in verse 6, he talked about how uh, there's a sacrifice in Basra. And then he talked about all the animals. And he talked about blood and, and fat, which, you know, like... Why, why do we care that the soil is gorged with fat? What, is that, what does that matter? Well, I think it matters because fat and blood are particularly prominent in, in Old Testament passages about the sacrificial system. And so I think what, what that's telling us is that as God is pouring out judgment, it's not, it's not a military thing. It's not, it's not a political thing. It's, it's a religious thing. His, his judgment is about sin. It's, it's a sacrifice because these people who are being judged, who are being condemned, are paying for their sins. This judgment is telling us that when God brings his kingdom in its fullness, the final eternal judgment, sin will be paid for. That's, that's what's happening. God is pouring out his judgment so that people get the wages of their sin. Wages of sin is death, and that's what they get. Next week, we're going to come back 
and we're going to hear the good news, right? The, the flip side of this coin, that, that salvation is coming. But I don't want us to go there too quick because I think we need to, we need to feel this. We need to sit under this and, and like not, not so that we just feel guilty in a bad way, you know, because guilt, guilt doesn't motivate us towards obedience to God. It, it motivates us towards legalism and appreciation for our obedience. But I hope that this passage helps remind us of what we've been saved from. Because we have a redeemer who Isaiah is going to tell us more and more and more and more about as the rest of the book goes on. He came. He he was born as a human being like us. He took on flesh like us so that he could be like us and be a substitute who lived a perfect life in our place and who died a death that he didn't deserve to die in our place. He was made to be sin for us so that on the cross he could pay for our sin. So the truth of this passage is that either our sin has been paid for in Christ or it will be paid for in final judgment. And that's both good news and bad news. It's good news, it's great news, it's amazing news for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Because we can have confidence that our sins have been forgiven and we're not going to experience the horrors of this passage. But it's bad news for everyone who hasn't trusted in Christ yet. It's bad news for people that are in our families. Kids who are in our church who haven't yet trusted in Christ. It's bad news for people that we live next to, that we work with, that we go to school with. It is bad news for people all across this world. And we have the good news that that judgment that they're under right now can be avoided. And so I hope that this passage motivates us in a good, godly way to celebrate the salvation that we have and to be continually uh, amazed by the grace that we've been shown in Christ. And that it motivates us to open our mouths and share the good news. Because really, there's no reason not to. I know that like, as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we, we don't like being reminded of that. Right? We've, we've heard that before. I need to share the gospel. I need to, I need to evangelize. I've been, I've been hearing that my whole life in the church. I know. I have too. So why don't we? Because the person at the checkout line is going to look at me funny if I bring up Jesus while I'm paying for my groceries. Or my neighbor, it's going to be a weird, awkward conversation about how I don't cut my grass and he doesn't like that, and then I'm going to try to bring up the gospel, and it's going to be strange. And I'm going to feel uncomfortable, and he's going to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I should do it anyway. Because if, if the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Being uncomfortable as a human being is a sanctifying experience. 
Because it causes us not to trust in ourselves and depend on ourselves, but to trust in Christ. I need you to get me through this awkward conversation with my neighbor. I need you to make me more motivated to cut my grass this summer so that we have a better relationship so we can talk about good things. For me to feel comfortable, I don't need God. At least I think I don't. But when we put ourselves in places of discomfort, we begin to trust in him. And as we trust in him, we begin to have our faith increased and our affections for him stirred, which means that we begin to share the gospel more. We put ourselves in more uncomfortable situations and we keep growing in our faith. And so go out this week and be uncomfortable. Be the weird Christian that brings up judgment. You know, I know that we're an Acts 29 church and we wear plaid and have beards and we don't like to do things that old churches used to do like talk about judgment and fire and brimstone. But it's in the Bible. And it's the reality that we live in. It's, it's what's coming. And so we shouldn't avoid it because it makes us uncomfortable. We should recognize that we've been given the best answer to the worst news. And the only thing we have to do is open our mouths and talk about it. I'm going to pray, and then, then Daniel's going to come and, and introduce the Lord's Supper for us this morning. Father, I thank you that you, you keep your promises. And that we know that just as the judgment described in Isaiah 34 is inevitable, that the salvation we're going to hear about in Isaiah 35 is inevitable too. That you have set apart for yourself a people from every nation and tribe and language. And that one day all those who have trusted in Christ for salvation will be together in your kingdom, bearing witness to the amazing magnitude of your grace. God, I pray that even as we long for that day to come, that we would remember that judgment is coming too, and that the gospel doesn't make this passage untrue. It doesn't make it go away but that it does provide a way out. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to truly have compassion on other people, and that your compassion in us would push us to share the truth of the gospel with them. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for you being our substitute and doing everything for us that we could not do for ourselves. Help us now as we celebrate your death and the Lord's Supper. It's in your name we pray. Amen.